start to ask questions. Why did Jesus have to die? And when we say that Jesus died for my sins, what exactly does that mean? And so this is a time where questions begin to arise. And questions need to be answered. Questions should not just be, well, just forget about it and come to church and just believe. I mean, yes and no, no and yes. Yes, just believe, but it's faith that seeks understanding. And understanding, actually, I believe, can give way to more faith. So it's cyclical. If you have faith, don't be afraid to seek understanding. Christianity is coherent. It's consistent. And in in the process of seeking understanding, more faith will grow. I truly believe that. So what I'd like to do today is wear um, my teacher hat uh, a little bit today. Last Sunday, we talked about the Holy Spirit, um, and we, we got, you know, <laughs> we were getting, you, you, what you got was a, a sermon. You got preaching, and we were, we were talking about being filled with the Spirit, Spirit baptism even, and um, it was more of a preaching. Today is going to be more of a teaching. And so um, I invite you, if you could, to stay close with me today as I do, as I wear my teacher hat. Um, get your notes. This will be a good time. Uh, the notes and the graphics that, that I've provided in the notes I think will be even more helpful. And um, have your pen to jot down some different things as you're understanding because I think that will be helpful. So. You know, we talked about the Holy Spirit last Sunday. We talked about questions, why did Jesus have to die and resurrect? Today, what we're going to talk about is the question, what is God? In other words, we're going to talk about the Trinity, the Trinity, the Trinity. And um, somebody once asked me, is the Trinity in the Bible? Uh, And the answer to that is no. The word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. However, if we study the Bible, we're going to get to a point where we begin to ask questions about the Trinity. And before I go any further, let me read this quote to you by a a student of the Bible. Um, His name is Richard Baucom. I was talking about him last Sunday. I'm going to mention him again today. And he says it perfectly, which is humorous, but I think sets the stage perfectly for today. The, The thing he says about the Trinity in particular, Trinity Sunday. Today is not Trinity Sunday. Um, Trinity Sunday is in June, but starting in June, we're going to start a new series through the book of Genesis. And for the duration of summer, we're going to kind of do this um, expository walk through the stories of Genesis. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So look forward, come June, to this new series in Genesis. So what I'm doing is I'm talking about Trinity today. So listen to this quote by Richard Bauckham. Trinity Sunday is a difficult day for preachers who often feel like they have to try to explain the idea of God as Trinity. But listen to this. It's even worse. It's an even more difficult day for congregations who have to sit there and listen to preachers trying to try to explain the Trinity. So it's not easy for me. It's probably even harder for you. But here's why it is important. He continues and he says this. You may think that preachers are always talking about God. But in my experience, most preachers actually talk very little about God. Preachers will talk a lot about what God wants of us, 
And if they're good preachers, they'll even talk even more about what God has done for us. But they don't talk much. They talk very little about who God is. Who is God? That's a big question, especially after Easter Sunday. Jesus died and rose again. He's God. Well, what about God in heaven? And what about the Holy Spirit? And that really kind of shows us we have to ask the question, what exactly is God? So um, that's the first of three headings that I'm going to teach today. The first is, what is God? The second is, how is God? Not, God, how are you doing? But more so, how does God exist? And then third is, who is God? What is God? How is God? Who is God? Um, I've been watching the Astros lately. They're doing great. I'm very excited that they, they you know, gave a pretty good beating to last year's World Series champions and um, excited about this year. But, you know, the baseball analogy, right? So first base, what is God? Second base, how is God? Both of those, we're going to trudge along and, and, and work to kind of get onto those, you know, make progress. It's going to be a little, but by the time we round third base, who is God? It's going to be intensely personal. And it's going to hit home personally for all of us. So I, I hope you don't think that I'm kind of getting my kicks here just talking theology. No, this is personal. This is deeply practical and applicable. So let's start with first base. And let's kind of step up to the plate and see if we can do this and uh, teach. What is God? What is he? How does, I mean, what, how does he exist? Are we talking about a spirit being? Are we talking about great consciousness? Are we talking about the first cause or the first mover? What are we talking about when we talk about the existence, the, the material, the substance of God? For this, I want to look at the Holy Scriptures because that is where our doctrine of the Trinity comes from. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 represents the basic, most essential prayer for every Jewish child. Just as our children in the Christian church learn to recite, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom. Every Jewish child knows this prayer by heart. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echat. Echat, one. The Jewish prayer here, Shema, means literally here. It's the Jewish prayer called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord our God is three. Is 300. No, it says the Lord our God is Echad, one. And what's being communicated here is the uniqueness of Judaism and all of the world religions, especially during that time, it was common to have a pantheon of gods, polytheism, many gods. You had Zeus, you had the goddess of the ocean, you had all of, the, you, all of these gods. Judaism stepped into the scene and was entirely unique because it worshipped one God, and this is not just great God of the universe, this is a God who is involved. He gave us ethics. So the idea is called ethical monotheism, which basically means one God who is involved in human affairs. 
Now, this fundamental prayer is so essential to the Jewish worldview and the Christian worldview that we can't step away from this um, easily. We have to assert and stand on this foundation that there is one God. There is one God. But then we get into the New Testament, and then we have Jesus saying this in John chapter 8, verse 58. Look at this with me. Listen, quite literally, listen to the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. This is the word of the Lord. And what a word of the Lord it is. When Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, he's getting his verbs messed up. Ego eimi in the Greek. I am. No, it, you, you, wait. You meant, you meant I was. And even then, how could you have lived all this time? Are you divine? So there's a couple of things he's saying. He's saying, I lived ever since before Abraham. But not only that, when he says, I am, does that sound familiar? He's taking on the holy name of God in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is talking to, he's, he's finally encountering this one God, and he says, well, who are you? And what do, I tell the, what do I tell the people? And God says, tell them I am sent you. My name is I am. I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the consummate statement of, of existence. It's, 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 it's just I, and then I be. I be. I have being. I exist. I have being. I am. And it's not just I exist and I have being. I always exist. That am is, is, is that temporal sense of that am is it's, it's always going to be. He's always existing. So I am. In fact, I am is built into the holy name of God. When you say that God is Yahweh, uh, that uh, within that four-letter Hebrew word, Yahweh, is, is built into this idea. God is. I am. I am. And so for Jesus, it's cheeky. <laughs> Before Abraham was born, I, I, I am. I mean, he might as well have said, take off your shoes. It's holy ground you're walking on in front of me. And so, you know, I mean, they pick up the stones and they want to throw it at him because he's claiming something. He's claiming divinity. Doubtless, Jesus claims divinity. And this gets kind of complicated because what do we do with this now? If we believe, as Christians like the Jews believed, that there is only one God, and that one God is the Father who exists in heaven, then how do... What about Jesus, the Son, on earth? So immediately we're confronted with a problem. And it gets worse. <laughs> It gets worse because when you look at John chapter 16, this is the third passage I want to read to you. Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, and we talked about this last Sunday, Jesus breathes on the disciples, and they get filled with the Holy Spirit. When the spirit of truth comes, he will, he will not speak on his own initiative, but he, whatever he hears, he will speak. He will speak what he hears and will convey it to you. So now the Holy Spirit is also given divine personhood. Are there any more takers? Any more characters? Peter? Paul? 
Okay, so they stop right there. So at this point, the biblical witness talks about God the Father. It talks about Jesus the Son as divine, and now the Holy Spirit as divine. How in the world do we make this work? Essentially, what we have here is a mathematical equation. If you can pull that up on the screen, Ryan, this mathematical equation illustrates the problem that we have. But at the same time, it illustrates the fundamental mathematical equation for what God is. Right? So if, you, if you're a scientist here, there's a couple of people who are interested in science, who know science. You want to kind of break everything down to a fundamental equation, a fundamental theory for everything. Do you want to know what the DNA sequencing of God is? It's right here on the screen. 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. That's the mathematical equation. Now, obviously, this doesn't work. So how do we make this work? How do we make any, any ideas, any takers? The most common one that I hear, and it's a great solution, um, but not perfect. And that solution is maybe God is like H2O. And when you have H2O, if you lower the temperature low enough, it solidifies. Okay, that's one substance. If you raise it up, then it melts and it becomes water. And raise it a little bit more, it becomes vapor. That's the solution. Sounds like an elegant solution. The problem with that analogy and where it falls short, and I'm going to make this practical now, and I want to show you why this is important. The problem with that solution is you never really have three distinct persons. It's only one, uh, what is that, what chemical uh, element. You only have one chemical element, really, taking three forms. And this we know not to be biblical. It's not biblical that God was in heaven, and he loved the world so much so that he melted, and he became Jesus the Son, and then when Jesus the Son died, he evaporated, and he became the Spirit. And the problem with that is clearly Jesus prays to the Father, Jesus breathes and imparts the Spirit, so the three exist concurrently. So that's where the water, ice, and vapor analogy falls short. It's necessary and important for us to keep the non-negotiable, that as much as on the right-hand side we believe that God is one, we also have to preserve the other non-negotiable, that Jesus is divine, and that the Holy Spirit is divine as, long, as well as the Father. We cannot lose the distinctness of the three persons. Now, Pastor Wayne, why does this matter? Can we just believe in Jesus and that's enough? And, and in some ways, honestly, I, I will tell you, if you believe in Jesus, you're on the right track. You, you should be okay. But I can tell you, where do we part ways with the Jehovah's Witnesses? and the Latter-day Saints, and the Mormons, it is fundamentally on this, on this equation. That's where we part company. It's the assertion that, yes, he is one God, but at the same time, we have to conserve, preserve, we have to protect individuality, or three persons. Why is this important? This is difficult, so I'm going to see. Why is this important? 
I think that this is so important in our modern day and age on so many levels because it speaks to relationship, it speaks to family relations, it speaks to professional workplace relations, it speaks to organizational dynamics. The way God exists has implications for how this world exists. Now, for example, here at Kingdom City, even this, even this analogy of Kingdom City, we are, well, well what are we? are we? We are one church? Are we one church of many congregations? Or are we one church of many communities? Or are we one community of many churches? And as we wrestle with the distinction, are we really just one church, but we're many communities? Or are we one community of many individual churches with identity? It's important for us to make that distinction. Because if I say, well, maybe we'll just kind of blend in with everybody else, and we don't have to really have an identity, I'm pretty sure my LT would kick me out, would fire me. Because we have to have identity. If we, as a, as a community, don't have identity, we get lost in the muddle. And this is important because it's a way of being, I think, that shows us even relational health. That when you are in a relationship, whether it's a family or a marital or a professional relationship, where all the boundaries are not well defined and patterns of operating are not clear, and what happens is there's enmeshment and there's codependency, and well, here's my space, and I'm all, I'm all up in your space, and my left arm is in your right sleeve, and you know, you're all on top of me, and what we have is basically a lack of definition, a lack of clarity. You know, one of the things that I'm learning these days is the healthiest thing for me as an individual, and I'm going to say for you as well, is to be able to say, this is where I end, and this is where you begin. Or the opposite, this is where you begin, and this is where I end. But no, we don't like to say that. We're like, much more often we're like, we're like, well, 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 there are no boundaries, and I'm kind of, you know, we're all in, and, and it's all enmeshed, and especially in collectivist societies, Asian cultures, right, if I can, I'm speaking, picking on my own culture, very difficult to define healthy relationships because of that lack of clearness and definition of the individual. Friends, do you, do you, I, I hope I'm communicating this adequately because it is, you know, this is, this is the congregation trying to, trying to put up with the pastor, trying to explain the Trinity. But it is very important that we understand in the midst of unity, because we all get unity, let's just all be one, that we also understand individuality. Does that make any sense? I hope it does. That we understand clearly, no, 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 I am an individual, this is where I end and you begin. I am an individual, this is where I begin and this is where you end. And the inability to define that is really the root of so many relational and so many societal problems. It's popularly known, friends, as boundaries. Boundaries. So at this point, if you're tracking you're saying, okay, Pastor Wayne, I hear what you're saying, 
and I'm following and you're communicating boundaries, you're saying that God has three boundaries or three, uh, three, that's tritheism, isn't it? So how does this work? How do we preserve monotheism? And that leads us to our second heading. How does this work? How in the world, how in the world uh, do we go from God being one and then three, and how do, we, how do we make this equation, how do we make this work? You know, you're probably wondering at this point, is Pastor Wayne going to pull a rabbit out of the hat? Is there something going to be, <laughs> is there going to be some secret answer? I'm going to give you the best, uh, the best solutions that I can offer, knowing that this is just a difficult thing, and that this side of the moon, we might never resolve this tension. All we know is that we have to affirm on the one hand, God is one, but we also know that we also have to affirm that there are three distinct persons. So, one way to make this work, how does God exist? Take a stab, right? I'm making a dash for second base, stealing the base here. We'll see if I make it. How is God, second heading, one way that maybe this might work? And I think it's the strongest solution forward. Is to think about it like this. There was a, an old Bible teacher from the early church times. His name was Gregory of Nyssa. And he says, it's kind of like this. Take, for example, in the Bible, Peter, Paul, and Timothy. You have three distinct persons, Peter, Paul, and Timothy, but you can also collectively refer them singularly as man, human. And so while there are three distinct individual persons, we can understand them singularly as this class, as this singular species even of man. So yes, there is a singularity about that. Three persons, but they are man. And what he does is he applies this same thinking. Just hang with me. He applies the same thinking to God. In other words, what we have in God are three distinct persons, but in this single substance, in this class of being, you can refer to them singularly as God. Singularly as God. And so what we have, what we have now, are three individual persons who are singularly understood as one class of being, as one substance of being, God. Now you might say, isn't that still tritheism? And you might say, isn't this still talking about three gods? And the answer to this is not if we understand that God is not bound by matter, space, time, and substance the way we are. One way you can understand this is God is spirit, therefore... In this highest class of being, all is God, and God is all. All is God, and God is all. 
And what we have in God is one God, but all is God in this highest class of being. Now, the second question you might ask, if that's not tritheism, then how, if all is God and God is all in this higher class of being, then how do you tell them apart? How do you tell the three persons apart? If they, you know, the technical term is they interpenetrate. They are, uh, they are in this dance where they are in each other. The way we tell them apart and the only way we tell them apart is through their relationship. How do you know that there is a son? You know that there is a son because there's somebody who is the father begetting the son. How do you know that there is a father? Because there is someone who comes as a son from the father. In other words, and I've used this, I've used this analogy before, if I, can, if I can see if I can bring this home. Uh, some of you here in this room are parents. And as a parent, let's say Thanos appeared on the scene horrifically one day, and he snapped his fingers, and all of our, not just 50% of the population, but all of our children disappeared. And not only did the children of the earth disappear, but all our memory of our children disappeared. Would you still be a mother? And would you still be a father if your children and their existence was completely wiped out? Is it fair to say that the minute your child, your son, or your daughter was born, your world was rocked? Is it fair to say that the minute you existed no longer as I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a young, young adult and I'm on my own and I'm, I'm free, right? You know, you hear the music playing in the background and you're kind of hanging out late and you can do whatever you want and you're enjoying life until you meet somebody and you get hooked up and you get married and you have a child and you're no longer that same individual, you become a parent, a father, a mother. What's being taught here is that each person exists because they exist in relationship to the other person. They are defined by that relationship. Their reality is not me, I'm alone, their reality is not that Simon and Garfunkel's song, I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty, nobody can penetrate, I have no needs of friends, friendship causes pain, it's laughter and it's loving I disdain. If I never loved, I never would have cried. I have my books, I have my poetry to protect me, I'm shielded in my armor, I'm hiding in my room, I'm safe within my womb, I touch no one and no one touches me, I am a rock, I am an island and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. I think what the doctrine of the Trinity teaches us is, no, you are not a rock. You are not an island. You are not alone. You are not isolated. In fact, isolation is not healthy. You exist in a web of relationships that define you. Your son your son is the reason you are. You are daddy and mommy because of your son. Your brother, your sister, these people define you as brother. 
You're not a rock. You're not alone. You are defined in these webs of relationship. So the reason that I do teach the doctrine of the Trinity, because in the end, it shows us that the way God exists is in a community of relationship, even though God is one, one being, one substance. In that substance of being, he exists dynamically in relationship. And that message is hard because sometimes I want to be a rock. I want to be an island. I want to say, get out of my face. Don't touch me. Leave me alone. I don't want to be related to anybody. I want to do this by myself. I shut you out. I keep you out. I can do this alone. No, the minute, the minute I stop being in relationship with somebody, I cease to exist. You know that? You ever hear that? It's like the philosopher's question, the challenge. If a tree falls in a forest and nobody's around to hear it, was there a tree? Right? You know what the answer is? There never was a tree to begin with because there was nobody there to witness it. If there's nobody to witness your birthing, this is why we're always maternally connected to our mothers. There's never a case, except unless you were you know, born in a test tube. But there's never a case where we are born without a witness. The second we breathe air, we are already entwined, entwined in relationship. And I think what this shows us is that essentially what we have in Christianity is not a solitary religion. It's a social religion. It's a religion that says, hey, what are you doing? Uh, I'm fine, just leave me alone. No, come on out. We want you to come to church. No, leave me alone. I don't... You can't isolate yourself forever. You need people. No, I don't need people. I can do this on my own. Listen, let us help you. Let's do this together. Christianity is not, this is, these are the words of John Wesley, Methodist. Christianity is not a solitary religion. It's essentially a social religion. And to turn it into a solitary religion destroys it. Destroys it. Friends, if I could just wrap up this second heading, because I, I, I threw out some kind of, some heavy, some difficult ideas. If there's one thing I'd like for you to just walk away with, right? If there's one simple thing, is to just keep in mind that this God that we worship, in his existence, in his DNA, right? Like DNA sequencing, is community, is relationship. Let me, can I say one, can, can I give you one analogy, one quick analogy? Like, we believe God is the God of this universe. And if God exists a certain way, the universe, because, you know, he, he created us in his image, he made this creation with his hands, it should have traces of God's DNA, right? This creation should have traces of God's DNA. And there's this, there's this fascinating scientific study that's been done, that's being done, where you have two particles, for example, in a box. One particle is blue, and the other particle is red. And these two particles in a box, let's say you cut that box in half, and you separate the blue box and the red box, and you take 
these two particles and you separate them as far as the universe is wide. And these two particles are so far apart, so far apart, um, I mean, you're, you're crossing space and time. This is, Einstein called this spooky action at a distance, right? And you have these two particles. This is really neat. Just hang with me. And then you go to one end of the universe and you open this box and you say, aha, it's the blue particle. Instantly, there's a relationship with the other particle that when you open this box and it says it's blue, across all space and time, there is a relationship that's even faster than the speed of light that instantly this particle must be red. What we're talking about are these umbilical cords that exist in physics. I'm not a, I'm not a physicist. I'm probably making somebody roll their eyes right now. But what we're talking about is we exist in a reality that everything is intimately, relationally connected somehow. Even, I mean, Einstein said the speed of light, you can't break, that's the highest law. You can't break that. But there is a higher law. It's the law of relationship. It's the law that comes from God's DNA himself. His inner existence is relationship. So if there's one thing I'd like you to remember from the second heading is how is our God? Our God is not alone. Our God is a community. You don't have to go to Starbucks and learn from, you know, the, you know drinking coffee in a community environment. You, know, you don't have to learn it from there. You can learn it from Christian theology. That our God lives eternally not in codependent, but in interdependent, well-defined, but at the same time, singular community of relationship. So what is God? One plus one plus one equals one. How is God? God is a community. God is a community. Third and last, here's where we get practical. Then who is God for me? Who is God for me? How does God relate to me? And how do I relate to God? And this is where I think it's very important for us to start not with God, but to start with ourselves. Who am I? Who are we? Do you know who we are? I want to show you a video, Ryan. If you can pull this video up and just go ahead and play it, I'll talk over it. Who are we? This is who we are. This is who we are. Let's talk about Haribo gold bears. Aloha. I can't stop eating this orange one. The red one is more gooder to me because it tastes like berries. It has this juicy flavor to it. They're really squishy. My bear and I like doing cartwheels and backflips and stuff. And then I'm going to fly it into my mouth. <laughs> I think you get the message. Hopefully you get I, I love that commercial. It's so delightful. The message is, wherever you are, no matter how high you are, no matter how powerful you are, you're a child that's just learned Maybe how to put up your defenses better, or how to grow a thicker skin, or let's learn how to cope in this world. 
but we are all children essentially and innately. Innately and essentially, we're children who like to have fun, but along the way, we might, we might have adopted false selves. We might have adopted false understandings of ourselves because it came from flawed and fall, and, and it came from, it essentially came from other children who were also operating out of their false selves, namely parents, others. Who is God, then, in relation to all of us children with grown-up skin on? Let's look at Luke chapter 10 as I wrap up with this last verse. At that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I praise you, O Father of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and you've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was for this way, this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is. Listen to this interrelationality. You can't know who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son. In other words, they exist because the other person exists. You can't keep being a son or a daughter if there is no father or mother. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal the Father. What we're seeing here in conclusion, I think, is this example, this model of healthy relating, not just between people, but in particular between the begetter and the begotten. In other words, parental figure and child. And that perfect harmony, Jesus wrestled with this. Do I want to go to the cross? I really don't, but thy will be done. This is one person of the Trinity submitting to the will of the Father. That's hard. I mean, some of us grew up with fathers that say, you're, I want to I see you, but not hear you. Or the word submit. Maybe some of us have had parental figures who have shown us, really, from their own woundedness, imperfect models of relationship. But in the end, the Christian name for God ultimately is Daddy. It's Papa. It's Abba. It's Father. The Christian name for parent, the Christian name for God is my parent the one who begot me. And that's a hard message because we have so many imperfect dads in this world. So many imperfect 
mothers, so many imperfect parents. And whenever somebody says, believe in Jesus and become a Christian, and then we say, Father, no, 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 I don't dig that. I'm not down with that. I'm not, I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna be down with the religion where we talk about this, you know, patrimony or patriarchy or father or mother or whatever, anything. And we wrestle with that. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up during this time. We wrestle with these notions. 